0: Uh, And so we're going to focus today on Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. Uh, And Jesus is going to really drill down this morning. If you thought that we had been to the most difficult sections of the, the Sermon on the Mount, surprise, you have not. Because today Jesus is going to say, it's not just good enough to love your neighbor as yourself. Now he says... You're to love your enemies. Yeah. Jesus, you don't know about my enemies. They're bad people. I don't care. You're to love your enemies. Um, And so this is a profound statement. And you know, the amazing thing for me is that really so many of us, we can't love our wives, really, the way we should. We don't really love our children the way we should. We don't love our friends the way we should. And so if we can't love the people that love us, how are we going to love the people that hate us? How does this happen? Well, Jesus is going to tell you how this is going to happen. And it all happens through the operation of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And and so we could never do this uh, as we are as natural men and women. It's impossible. But only when the Lord fills us with the Holy Spirit and we give sway to the Holy Spirit, we can do this. And Jesus is going to tell us uh, in this message why why it is so important that we do this. So Matthew 5, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And by the way, that's what they had been taught. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, that what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, there it is. Just because you can love people that are nice to you is inconsequential. Don't Jesus said, don't the pagans do that? The tax collectors do that. But I want you to love those who hate you, who persecute you, who despise you uh, and and so he's going to speak to us today and i and I pray that that this percolates and resonates in your heart because it's a message that I need for myself uh, because it's not easy for me to do that certainly and but I've learned that as I learned to pray for those who have persecuted me and I have that the the anger and the vitriol comes away, and so Jesus is teaching us, really, that a Christian is to love others, not as a man in this world loves his friends, but as God loves, a deeper, more profound uh, love. Verse 44 makes it quite clear, quite clear that we must act in this way in order to be the sons and daughters of God. That's the nature of what he wants from us. Effectively, our conduct must be God-like. That's the nature of what he wants. Must be God-like. God's love is without discrimination or bias in any way because it extends both to the just and to the unjust. Uh, So also, must we love in that way? Loving both the just and the unjust. We are to love those who by any human standard would be considered our enemies. And I know you're saying right now, oh boy, John, this is going to be a good one. How are you going to prove this point? How are you going to show me how I do this? How am I to live my life in this way if this is what God wants? I don't know if I can do it. Well, all that you just said is good because effectively that puts you in the beginning of the Beatitudes where you're mourning for your spirit. Uh, where you look to God because you're hunger and thirsting for righteousness, and yet you know that you don't have it within you. And so in that aspect, God fills us. And it's in that filling that God is going to allow us to serve him in this way. So it is a love that even when the object of the love is hateful or unlovely, it continues. It is an inscrutable kind of love, unknown by anything in this world that exists totally apart from the possibility of being loved back. How about that? We see this love only in Jesus Christ and we see it preeminently expressed on the cross as Jesus is being crucified and he says to the Lord, to God, lay not this at their feet, forgive them. They know not what they do. How could God do this? How could Jesus do this? Because, you see, he was so filled with the Spirit of God that he was able to pray for his enemies and separate out that love that he has. And so it becomes important to understand this. And so we understand that this kind of love is called the agape love. Agape, it's a Greek word. It's the only kind of word that refers to divine love. All the other words relating to love don't refer to divine love. They refer to various types of human love. But agape love refers to divine love, a love that requires no love back, an inscrutable type of love. It's the kind of love that Jesus said to Peter after he after he betrayed him uh, and said to Peter at the beach, lovest thou me, Peter? Lovest thou me? And he said it twice and three times. Lovest thou me? Feed my sheep. Meaning... I want you to love me back with the kind of love that God loves you. And so here's what was going on if you were a first century Jew. They had not been taught this. They had been taught to love their neighbors, love fellow Jews and hate the foreigners. They hated the Gentiles. They hated all that they hated all the enemies of God. In fact, they regarded them as dogs. Really? And of course, you have them despising the Gentiles and the Gentiles despising them. It's no wonder that nobody got along. It's no wonder that centuries later, there's still enmity there in the Middle East. They had been taught wrong because that was not what God had told them. God did not just want them to teach that, that you love, you, uh, you love your neighbor and you hate your enemies. No, God doesn't teach that. We don't hate our enemies. We pray for our enemies. We ask that God brings them to truth and justice and salvation. And we do that as every, in every possible way. And so it's found nowhere in Scripture that you are to hate your enemies. That's not going to be found in the Bible. And so while we're in this world, we must recognize the fact that God does indeed cause His sun in the sky to shine on the just and the unjust, He causes the rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. Why? Why does God do this? Why does he seem to bless the unjust? Why does he seem to bless people that despise him and hate him? Why does he do that? Well, really, what it means is it's called common grace, common grace. And that's a theological term, meaning that God has determined to dispense his grace on whole to the earth, uh, to both those that love him and those that hate him because there will be a day when there will be justice, when there will be a calling back. And God announces to them, effectively, that if they continue to defy him, that that grace will end and someday they will be destroyed. Now, as we contemplate the directive of loving our enemies, we have to go back and look at the example of Jesus Christ. Uh, and it's very good example of this is found in Romans chapter 5, verses 7-7. And eight, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. And there it reads, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I think that's the synthesis of this whole message, that God died for you even before you accepted him even as you were in notorious, open revolt against God, even shaking your fist at God, he died for you on the cross because he loved you so much. That's the nature of agape love. That's the nature of what Christ is trying to teach us to give this message to the, to the world. Now, here's the thing. We understand. We could never act like this ultimately in ourselves Uh, And the Bible tells us this, makes no secret of it. The Bible teaches us that apart from God's saving work through Jesus Christ on the cross, the natural man cannot understand this teaching. That's why I've told you from the beginning this is not a code of ethics. This is not a, a book of ordinances. But instead, this is about understanding the spirit of God. Jesus said this directly to the Pharisees, you see, In John chapter 8, verse 43, where he said, Why do you not understand my speech? Because you hear my, you cannot hear my words. You cannot hear my words. Yes, your ear physically hears the words, but your spirit does not hear the words. In other words, the natural man has ears to hear, but he cannot hear without the Holy Spirit. You see, this is all about understanding the Holy Spirit, Uh, and it's important for you to understand this, because when you were saved, when you gave your heart to God, instantaneously God sealed you with the Holy Spirit at that moment. Second, the natural man cannot receive the Holy Spirit. You understand that. It's not an act of will. You just don't will it and say, I will receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus spoke about this in John 14, verses 16 and 17, where he said, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you, and will be in you. So again, the natural man cannot understand this. They cannot receive the Holy Spirit. It is only through the act of God dispensing his spirit on someone who is bereft and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Third, the Bible teaches that the unsaved man cannot use his will to submit to God's law. He cannot say, Today I'm getting up and from now on I'm going to follow God's law. Failure. Romans 8, verse 7 says, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do. This is not an act of human will. It is impossible. It does not work that way. Fourth, the natural man cannot receive the things from the Spirit of God. Uh, 1 Corinthians... Chapter 2, verse 4 says as follows, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Let's understand what that means. That means you could have a brilliant uh, writer put together a masterful sermon, a sermon perhaps about the gospel, and if that person is not saved and not under the power of the Holy Spirit, he would come up here and give the most masterable speech, and it would fall dead on the floor, dead on the floor. It would never get five feet beyond this podium because it's not inspired by the Holy Spirit. And yet some humble, poor, uneducated person could get up and make some simple testimony. You know it. You've seen it. You've been there where some simple person gets up and gives a testimony, and it's like a rocket, Going out through the congregation, cutting through your heart. Why? Because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that's the nature of what we're dealing with here. Uh, we, we have to again understand that if we want to live the way Christ is telling us to live, we have to allow the Holy Spirit to percolate up and power and empower our lives. And so if we put all of this together, we come to understand that it is only through the Holy Spirit that we are able to be the children of God. It is only through the Holy Spirit that we're able to even consider loving our enemies. It is only through the Holy Spirit that we're able to consider to pray for those who persecuted us. And, and cause suffering to us. It is only through the Holy Spirit that I can go and walk two miles when somebody is enforcing me to walk one, when I can give you my cloak and then my coat when you've tra- asked me for it, when as I see you in despair and distress, I will reach down and help you and lift you up. When I know that you need money, I will, I will lend it to you because I know that God wants me to do that. It is only because of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that does this. And so here's the bottom line. We are to be dead to ourselves. Jesus has said this over and over again, dead to ourselves and our self-concerns. But then Jesus goes even further. Not only do I want you to be dead to yourself and dead to your self-concerns, I want you to love your enemies. Oh, God, that's so hard for me, Father, You don't know what they've done to me. You don't know how mean they've been to me, really. Have they put you on a cross? Because I prayed for my enemies as I was dying on a cross. So yes, you've suffered. Yes, you've been through hard times. But I want you to love your enemies. And the reason for this is that this is how we are to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't you see that that differentiates us from a world that is lost? When the world sees people like you being kind... Being kind to people who have persecuted you and caused suffering, and sees that you're that you're displaying love, it causes them to reflect to reflect on the kind of life that you have. How can you do it? How can you be that kind of person? I can only do it because the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in my life. That's the only way that I can do it. Uh, and so this becomes important for you. Look, here's the thing: we live in an evil world. And in this world, evil people seem to prosper. And we've all done that and wondered why. Uh, but God dispenses holy common grace. He dispenses it throughout the world because, frankly, if He didn't dispense common grace, this world would have been destroyed a thousand years ago. But God has determined that He has a purpose. In what he's allowing this world to live through, and so this is common grace and the fact that God dispenses it on the just and on the unjust is probably most clearly indicated in John 3:16: "Whosoever believeth, whosoever believeth in Jesus Christ shall be saved Whosoever You know, that's why I could never be a part of Reformed theology. I don't believe, you see, in my heart, that God predetermined and predestined who would be saved and who would not be saved. What part of whosoever shows that God has made a predetermination? The rain falls on the just and on the unjust, and he gives us all to make that independent decision, whosoever. So as long as we live for ourselves, concerned about our rights, uh, being watchful and jealous at our treatment, always reacting to what others are doing to us, we can never truly be a son of God. Never. It is through the Holy Spirit, you see, that we see the unjust in a different way. As long as we live for ourselves, we cannot do that. But when we give sway to the Holy Spirit when we let the pilot light in our lives turn on to a higher degree, we recognize that these people are dupes of Satan and are helpless victims, that they're following slavishly along, not recognizing that they're walking their way to hell. Rather, I must do everything I can to save them. This is what God wants from us. This is who we are. We are the messengers of Jesus Christ. Now, why should we do this? Why should we do this? Well, some pacifists might say, well, if you're nice to such evil people, you see, they will become nice to you. Well, the world tried that unsuccessfully with Hitler. Remember, we gave him Czechoslovakia. It didn't work. You see, it didn't work because that's how evil is. Merely being nice to people is not going to change who they are. Uh, but we still have to display the love of God, and so the question becomes: How do we do this? How do we how do we work with with these enemies? How do we how do we manifest the will of God? Well, God has told us this: First, bless them that curse you, or in simple words, with kind words. As they are evil and spiteful towards you, you don't return the same language or, rhetoric, or rhetorical speech. Instead, you speak with kind words. You deflect. Secondly, do good to them that hate you. A benevolent action for some spiteful action. Uh, and here's the perfect act- example of that. The farmer may hate God. He may despise God. He may shake his fist at God and be an open, notorious rebellion against God. Yet God will allow the sun to shine on his crops and the rain to edify his crops. Why? Because that's how God acts. He acts kindly without discrimination or bias. That's how God acts, and that's how he wants us to act. Lastly, pray for them that persecute you. Now, this seems like this this is impossible. But I can tell you personally, and I've tried this in my own life, when I've had people that have been enemies of mine, who have been uh, vituperative toward me, who have persecuted me, when I begun to pray for them and ask God to save them and deliver them from where they are, the, the, the poison is drained away from you. It happens. It's the natural act. You cannot pray for somebody and still be pe- filled with poison. Uh, and so some of you might say to me, well, John, come on, what kind of prayer do I make for someone that hates me? Do I say, oh, I hope they make more money. Oh, I hope they get more power. Oh, I hope that they're considered to be better people. No, that's not what God wants you to do. God wants you to pray for their souls. God wants you to pray that they become reconciled to their sin. God wants you to pray that they repent. That's what you pray for. You pray that God brings the realization of sin to their life and where they're headed, and that's our responsibility. That's how we pray, and that's what God is telling us. And so these are the kind of prayers that God would have us make for all these miscreants, all of them. God would inspire us to a higher calling, you see. Uh, Pray for their souls that they come face-to-face with our Lord, Pray that their lives are changed. This is how Christ expects us to act. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, you see. It's about changing our character and how we impact a lost world. Now, Jesus always acted in this way. Even as he was dying on the cross, he acted in this way. And the New Testament has a number of examples, and I want to give you two that to me demonstrates loving your enemies in a very profound way. Turn to Acts chapter 6, if you would. And this is the example of Stephen. Acts chapter 6, beginning with verse 18. Verse 8, excuse me. Now Stephen, you know the story of Stephen. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. And by the way, Stephen wasn't an apostle, but he was being used by God in an incredible way. So you see how God is? That when you bow to his will, he will fill you with the power and authority, even though maybe you didn't have an official position. Don't worry about your position. You don't need to be pastor or associate pastor or music minister. You can be God's man and woman right there in your seat, right where you are. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces, of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Understand that. That when you're filled with the authority of the Holy Spirit, even as you just engage with people, the power coming out of your mouth, because it's the word of God, the spirit of God, cannot be rebutted. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy. Against Moses and against God. Of course, that was patently false. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against this law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. His face was like that of an angel. He will then go on to give one of the greatest sermons in the history of Christianity as he ties all the work of Judaism together, coming together to this point with Jesus Christ, how they had persecuted all those who had called before him. And as a result of being a godly man, as a result of demonstrating this love, what happened? He was taken outside and stoned to death. But who sat there and watched it and would be changed forever? Forever. Paul. His life would be changed forever because he saw it. And so there's the example of love towards your enemies that changes the world. You see, you can't write this up that a man who is now being arrested falsely and will be put to death can demonstrate love. How does that happen? It happens because he's filled with the spirit of God. And when you're filled with the Spirit of God, you see the consequences. God takes these evil acts and uses it for the advancement of the kingdom. Paul, the greatest missionary evangelist in the history of the world, would be changed forever because he had a curbside view of this man. What a powerful example. There's another example I want to bring your attention to, and that's found a few chapters further back. Acts chapter 16. This is Paul and Silas. Another example of loving your enemies and how it works. Acts 16, verse 22. Uh, and, And so the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into the prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, I want you to f- feel. Are you feeling love? Are you feeling love? You've just been preaching, evangelizing, being kind to people. Instead, they beat you and arrest you and then put you not only in jail, but they put you in the deepest part of jail. And furthermore, they put your feet in stocks. They put your feet and hands in stocks so you're locked down. You feel in love? You feel in love towards your enemy? But look what the Holy Spirit says here. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Singing hymns to God? What are you guys drinking? Take a look around you. Look where you are. It's hopeless. They hate you. They despise you. They want to kill you. All right? And look how they do that. They're singing to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. The world watches, you see, folks. They know who you are. They know you go to church, and you're here all Sunday morning. They know some of you go out for Bible studies during the week. They know that. And they watch how you act, and they see how you act. And so here they were, the prisoners, the very pagans, are watching their conduct. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake at the foundation of the prisons were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, do not harm yourself. We are all here. And what's the end game of this story? The jailer and his entire family got saved. They were saved because they were in the presence of agape love. They were in the presence of a divine love, a love that they had never seen before, where instead of having hate and vengeance and revenge and bitterness, instead they see singing of hymns and love. And in fact, they were released from prison uh, as a result of all this. You can't make this up. This is why God wants us to live like this. This is the nature of this lesson. This is why it's important. Now, there are some common sense aspects to this teaching as well, which I want to drill down to you, to this kind of living. Sometimes we forget. Sometimes we forget about this, but I want you to consider this. Uh, and, And the Lord was aware of this. You see, you will be happier in your life in this world if you live your life like this. If you have anger or resentment or bitterness inside you, it becomes Physically destructive. We have physicians in this church that can tell you that. That all it does is cause your blood pressure to get higher and higher. Your arteries to constrict. Your heart to burn higher. And instead, you are shortening your life. And your life is unhappy. It's not just a shorter life, it's a destructive life, a physically destructive life because this is resentment. The anger also affects others around you, such as your loved ones, even if the anger is not directed towards them. Think about your spouse living with you. I mean, think about it. You think it's an easy thing to live with an angry person, a person who has bitterness and rage and resentment in their life, who is constantly fighting battles? who sees battles out there every time, God doesn't want us to do that. God is saying to us, don't be like that. I want you to love your enemies. I want you to pray for them, affirm them, lift them up. Know that they're, st- they're dupes of Satan. And so even if the anger is not directed towards your spouse or towards your children, it spills over. It spills over. And so not only is your spiritual life affected, but your physical life in this world is affected. Removing the anger from yourself uh, is a positive thing to do, and it will make you happier overall. So there's the prescription. Jesus says you want to be like the sons and daughters of God? This is how you are to act. You know, and in the 48th verse in the Sermon on the Mount, he says there, be ye perfect like your father. Do you wonder why... God says your righteousness is like filthy rags. Does it begin to make sense for you as all the teachings of the Bible begin to resonate? Here he is telling you that you have to love your enemies. And you thought you were good. You thought you were righteous. You see? But you're defining your righteousness by humanity and God repudiates that standard. He's holding us to a higher standard. And so it it begins to to percolate in this way. As you change your attitude towards the other person, it is possible that that other person's attitude might be changed as well. As they begin to see the reflection of God in you and how you respond to them, it could, in, in fact, begin to change them as well. Making someone else happier, no matter who that is, ultimately can make us happier as well. At the same time, when you live your life like this, you are setting an example to your family, to your children, to your church, to the world. You're setting an example to show that there is a better way to live. There's a better way to live. Not, not fighting every day, not embracing these enemies Uh, and being antagonistic towards them. You're demonstrating what it means to be a Christian. This is Practical Christianity 101. I know it's not easy. I know you can't go out of here and saying, well, that's it, I'm persuaded, I'm going to start loving all these enemies that hate me. It's not going to happen like that, but it's slowly as you give sway to the Holy Spirit and you say to the Lord, Lord, help me, change me. Give me the ability, Father, to not react the way I have in the past, to demonstrate love even when I deal with unloving and hateful people. He will do that. He will fill you that way. Help me to pray for them, Lord. Help me to pray for them. Give me wisdom even as, I, as you teach me, Lord, how I to, to pray. And so by teaching them, By teaching others how to forgive and to exhibit love, effectively, you have given the world a tremendous example of what it means to be a Christian. That's what this is about. God wants you to leave here ever committed to being a Christian. Be more committed every day, more affirming in your role as a Christian. This becomes a lifelong challenge to us. Look, this isn't about flipping a switch. And on the day you flip that switch, all of a sudden it changed. But in this ongoing act of sanctification and worship, daily as we pray, as we read the scriptures, as we bow before his throne, he chips away. He chips away and he molds us. And so each day as something happens in your life, you come to terms with it and you don't lash out. You don't have revenge. And instead you look to find a way to love and embrace and pray. Look, this teaching is for all of us. From me, right through to the end of the church, right at the back row. We are meant to love our enemies and to do good to them that hate us and to pray for those who malign us. It is only because of the Holy Spirit that is within us that we can do this. There is no other way. He has equipped you, He has given it to you, and now the question is elevated. Turn on the pilot light. Ask him to strengthen you. Ask him to fill you more each day so that each day of your life you can be the sons and daughters of God, that you can walk within the kingdom, that you can be the kind of Christian he's called you to be, that through you, each and every one of you, you can bring Jesus Christ to a world that is lost and needs him. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Lord, Father, I thank you so much for this example of Christ that you've given us, for these words, Lord, in the Sermon on the Mount, how they touch our heart, how we recognize our need, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And yes, Lord, we mourn for our spiritual condition because we know that we can't do this as natural men and women. And so, Father, we put this aside and ask to be filled and refilled with your spirit, so that through the Holy Spirit, we can be empowered to live this life, that we can walk out of this hotel and go out into the streets of Naples and throughout the world and be with people that may not like us, that may despise us, yet we extend the love of Jesus Christ, the agape love that knows no bounds in this world and help to change this world for you. Father, we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you, church.